Amen. Harvest, you may have a seat. God is good, amen. Amen. Andy said it right, it's beautiful out there this morning. I'm one of those weird people that kind of likes winter, kind of likes the snow, but I have to admit that the older I get, the less eager I'm out to get in it. It is what it is. Well, you know, today, like never before, we are bombarded with messages. There's messages in the music we listen to, in the shows we watch, in the books we read, on Facebook, on YouTube, billboards. We have messages from politicians, from bosses, from neighbors, from family members. It's overwhelming. And most of the messages that this world puts out really aren't worth our time. Amen. But there is one message that's essential. There is one message that should consume our every thought. This morning we're continuing our series, Divine Servant, a study through the book of Mark. And last week we looked at the identity of Jesus. Today I want to look at the message of Jesus. Jesus came proclaiming a message And if I was to boil today's sermon down to one sentence, it would be something like this. Jesus came with an authoritative message that changes lives. Jesus came with an authoritative message that changes lives. If you're ready to dive into our text this morning, say go. All right, we're in Mark chapter 1, considering the uh, verses 14 through 28. Follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus' message is simple. It's the gospel. It's simple, but it's deep. But it's not just deep. It's life-giving. This morning, I want to highlight for you three elements of Jesus' message. Three elements of Jesus' message from our text, Mark 1, 14 through 28. Here's the first point in your notes. The first element of our message, the call to respond to the gospel. The call to respond to the gospel. Jesus' message while he was here on earth was simply this, the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? That question might seem obvious, especially if you've you've grown up in church. But you know, if you really think about it, the gospel is one of those Christianese words that we know, but we don't really know as much as we think you know, you know? You know, if you've grown up in church, you've heard that word a lot probably all your life, but if you were to really sit down and try to put a definition to it, could you? What is the gospel? We see the, the problem with defining the gospel is that it's, it's big. It, it permeates the whole of Christian life. It's too multifaceted for just a simple definition, and yet we need to be able to define it. After all, the the gospel is the most important message we will ever receive, 
or communicate. We have to be able to define it. So I'm going to give you a definition this morning, but I want you to know that it's imperfect. But here's our definition of the gospel. The gospel is good news that is from God about God. The gospel encompasses the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, which is what we need for spiritual transformation. So it's all about the work of Christ, but it's all about the work he does in us as well. It's the good news from God about God. David E. Garland is a commentator on Mark, and he writes this. It is from God and about God. The gospel is good news, the very best news ever to come to the hearing of humanity because it contains the message of forgiveness, restoration, and new life in Christ. It's a message from God about God. Jesus delivers the message of the gospel, but the gospel's about him. His life, his purity, his death, his resurrection, his defeat over sin and Satan and sin, that's the gospel. But it's also a message of forgiveness, restoration, and new life in Christ. You could say, Jesus is the gospel. It's a message from God, about God. Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of God. Now let's unpack verses 14 and 15. Mark writes in verse 14, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. Up until this time, Jesus had been doing ministry. He'd been doing it in Judea and Samaria, but he didn't come to Galilee to minister until John was arrested. He waited to start ministering in Galilee till after John's arrest. And two things I want to point out here. One, Mark is letting us know that John's ministry is done. The forerunner is finished. The envoy who came to announce the king has completed his job. Jesus is taking over. John preached a message of repentance in light of the coming Messiah. Jesus preaches a message of repentance in light of the arrival of the kingdom of God. Now, we'll get to that in a minute. Two things I wanted to point out. One, that. The next thing, this. Something else that's interesting. Mark is pointing to another way that John is the forerunner to Jesus. That term arrested there in verse 14, it literally means to hand over. That term is going to come up again in relation to Jesus. In Mark 3.19, Mark lists out the disciples of Jesus Christ, and the last name on that list is the name you'd expect, Judas. And of Judas, Mark writes this, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him, literally, who handed him over. That same word. And that same word is actually going to be repeated many times near the end of Mark. And what the scripture is alluding here in chapter 1 is that not only is John the forerunner of Jesus' ministry, but he's also the forerunner in Jesus' fate. As John was handed over, so Jesus will be handed over. John's arrest marks the end of his ministry and the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. It says Jesus came to Galilee. Now, just a little bit about Galilee. I've said before, it's the northern part of Israel, And it was considered the outskirts. It was far from Jerusalem, which was the religious center of the country. This is an unlikely place to start a ministry. And yet this is the place that Jesus chooses to spend the bulk of his time. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Now we've defined the gospel as the good news that is from God about God. That's Jesus' ministry. But you know there's more going on here. Let's unpack verse 15. It says, and saying, this is what Jesus is saying. 
The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. First, Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. Now, what time? What are we talking about? Well, up until then, Israel had been waiting for the promised Messiah. Scriptures had promised that the Messiah was coming. Jesus is saying the time has now come. The wait is over. God is interceding on behalf of his people. The moment in history that sovereign God chose to intervene by sending his son has arrived. It's time. You know, often we like to plan family outings. And we'll sit down with the kids and we'll let them know, you know, on such and such a date, we're going to go to the park or we're going to go do this or we're going to go do that. And they look forward to it, sometimes constantly asking, is it time yet? But then the time finally comes and we tell them, it's time, go get ready. Why can't you find your shoes? Well, on a grander scale, that's what we're talking about. The time God has been promising since Genesis chapter 3.15 is here. Jesus says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. What is the kingdom of God? Let me explain the kingdom of God in three ways. Spiritual, millennial, and eternal. Got that? Ready to move on? Let's open this up. Three ways. First, the kingdom of God is spiritual. When Jesus came, he established the spiritual kingdom of God by preaching the good news of salvation, dying on the cross, and rising from the dead, thus conquering sin and death. So those who turn from sin and accept Jesus become a part of the spiritual kingdom of God. That is where we are right now in history. If you are a believer, you are a part of the spiritual kingdom of God. You're one of his subjects. But, and this depends upon your eschatological views, there's more to the kingdom of God. I believe God will set up his kingdom on earth during what we call the millennium. Now, if you don't know what that is, it's talked about in Revelation chapter 20. Jesus comes back. He does away with Satan and the Antichrist, and he reigns on earth for a thousand years. This is where I believe many of the Old Testament promises yet to be fulfilled come true. There are many promises in the Old Testament that we're still waiting on, and I believe those are fulfilled during the time of the millennium. Now, you might disagree with me on that. There are a lot of views on the book of Revelation. There's a lot of views about what that millennium is. Not everybody believes the same way, and that's okay. We can disagree on that. But I said, think about the kingdom in three ways, spiritual, millennial, and eternal. After the thousand years, I believe, God will create a new heavens and new earth and will reign forever and ever and ever. And you can read about that in Revelation chapter 21. Now, I'm sure that everything I just said sparks about a hundred questions in your mind that we don't have time for. And now you're frustrated and thinking, well, why did you bring it up? Because we need to grasp as best we can what the kingdom of God is. And that was a very brief overview. But the kingdom of God currently is spiritual where Jesus rules and reigns in our hearts and one day it will be a literal physical kingdom here on earth. So when you think of the kingdom of God, you can think of it this way. Already, but not yet. The kingdom of God is already spiritual, but not yet. It will come physical. Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, what's been promised is here. It's coming. Why is Jesus talking about the kingdom of God? Why is he even mentioned of that? 
because the kingdom of God is central to the gospel. Look at verse 15. And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus comes on the scene, he says, it's time, the kingdom of God is at hand, and then he tells them what to do about it. This is his application to the message. How do people become a part of the kingdom of God? That's the question that the gospel answers. How do we become a part of the kingdom? Repent and believe in the gospel. If you want to be a part of the kingdom of God, you repent and believe in the gospel. This is the call to respond to the gospel. Repent and believe. How do we respond? We repent and believe. This is the response that every person should have, but unfortunately, not every person will have. Now, I want to say two things about this idea of repentance and belief. First, this is the appropriate channel by which a lost person is saved. Repenting, so let me define it for you, is a turning away. If we're talking about the kingdom of God, repenting is switching allegiances. It's shifting from a life of sin, a life of self, and it's turning to, to Jesus Christ as king. Repentance is switching allegiances from self to Jesus. It's switching away from the kingdom of me to the kingdom of Christ. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other way by which people are saved from sin except through Jesus. Let me add that there's no other God and there's no other way of salvation except through Jesus Christ. And the way you accept him is through repentance and belief, through turning away from a life of sin and embracing by faith Jesus Christ. That's how a person is saved. And you can do that by simply telling him in the quietness of your heart, Lord Jesus, forgive me of living a life of sin. I believe in you. That prayer said and meant, not just recited, but meant from the heart is acting out repentance and belief. And that's how we join the kingdom of God. But friends, it doesn't stop there. Repentance and belief is not just for the lost. This is how we live the Christian life. This is how we come to the Christian life, and it's how we live the Christian life. Our every day should be constantly practicing repentance and belief, not because we need to be resaved. No. Once saved, always saved. I believe that. Romans 8:31 through 39. No, we as Christians practice repentance and belief as a way of deepening our dependence on God, as a way of recognizing where our hearts are still in allegiance toward us and not toward God. This is a daily practice. This is sanctification. Where I recognize the allegiance of my heart is still toward me in whatever area of my life. So I repent of that, I turn away from that, and I give it to Jesus. When I was young, I was enamored with the idea of making movies. That was my dream. There's nothing wrong with making movies, nothing at all. But you see, it had my heart. It was my idol. And God had other things for me and I had to let that go. I had to give that to Jesus and surrender to his plan for my life. Repentance and belief. That's the call to respond 
to the gospel. The second thing I want to look at is this. The life-changing work of the gospel. Point number two in your notes, the life-changing work of the gospel. Jesus' message changes lives. Now, this is radical. Watch what happens when Jesus steps into people's lives. Read with me in verses 16 through 20. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. The life-changing work of the gospel. Jesus here in this passage calls the first of his disciples. He passes alongside the Sea of Galilee, or the Sea of Tiberias, as it's also called, and It's actually a large freshwater lake. It's the largest freshwater lake in Israel. It's 64 square miles, and it's a beautiful lake. In fact, I've got a picture of it for you, the Sea of Galilee. This is where Jesus does much of his ministry. There were numerous towns along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and the fishing industry flourished here. Jesus is passing along and sees, as you might expect, fishermen. He passes by two groups, Simon, who is later named Peter, and his brother Andrew, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Now, it's possible that these four men were in business together as fishermen, but they were prominent men. They weren't poor men. They were prominent men. In fact, Simon Peter owned his own home in Capernaum. The mention of servants, by the way, in verse 20, even suggests that Zebedee may have been a wealthy man. And this is important to know because Jesus shows up and he radically changes their lives. He says, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. This call to follow is a call to discipleship. He's calling them to become his disciples. This is actually a command, not a request. This was completely different, by the way, from the normal discipleship practices of the day. Most rabbis did not go out and collect disciples. If you wanted to be the disciple of a rabbi, you went to that rabbi. Jesus breaks this. He invades their lives while they're at work, and he says, you follow me. This call to discipleship was a call to abandon their livelihood and follow Jesus. This would be akin to someone walking into your place of work and saying, leave this and come with me. I've got something better for you. Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Now, the meaning of Jesus' words here, it would not have been lost on them. They knew what he was telling them to do. They knew he was calling them to follow him as their rabbi, to learn from him, and they also knew what he was saying was, come to me and I will teach you how to preach this gospel, how to preach this message to others who will hear and be saved. The gospel is life-changing, and it's a radical call to abandon all other allegiances to pursue Jesus Christ. See, what we're seeing in verses 16 through 20 is a response to the call that Jesus lays out for us in verses 14 through 15. And the way that Simon, Andrew, James, and John respond to this call is the way we should all respond today. When Jesus calls, we leave everything and we follow him. This is the call, by the way, that Jesus puts on our lives. It's radical and it's life-changing. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying you should just up and quit your job. Although, 
that call has been put on some people. My brother, he worked for a really good, uh, he worked as a really good computer technician for several years. He made very good money, but he felt the call. And now, years later, he and his wife and his family are missionaries in Indonesia. They got that call to leave the job. That's not everyone's call, but they got that call. That kind of thing does happen. And perhaps God will call you to do something big like that, but I can tell you for sure what he is calling you to do. He's calling you to live a life that reflects him right where you are. If he moves you from where you are, he moves you. But I can guarantee you he's calling you to live a life that reflects him right where you are. He's calling us to believe the gospel. He's calling us to love our enemies. He's calling us to live a life before men that mirrors the work he's done in our hearts. He's calling us to unity. He's calling us to spiritual growth. He's calling us to reject sin. He's calling us to stop pursuing unhealthy habits. He's calling us to refuse to depend on our own wisdom. He's calling us to preach the gospel. He's calling us to trust him despite the fear and the unknown that permeates every single day we live on this planet. That's his call. It's radical. But that's the work of the gospel. It's life-changing. And let me add this. It's life-giving. Were Simon, Andrew, James, and John comfortable being fishermen? Probably. It's all they knew. Had they not followed Jesus, would they have just lived out their days doing their thing day in and day out till they grew old and died? Most likely. But they would have missed out on all the incredible spiritual blessings Jesus offers. Were their lives harder as a result of following Jesus? You better believe it. Just for example, Peter in Acts 5 is put into prison. Following Christ is hard. But despite all the difficulty they faced, could these four men at the end of their lives echo Paul's words from Romans 8.18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us? I believe so. Friends, God wants to change your life. He wants you to abandon whatever is shackling you to a mundane existence and live in the freedom and purpose and blessing that he has for you. And you may ask this, where do I start? Start simply by asking him, what do you want to change about me? And it won't be easy. Following Christ is hard. It's painful. And at times, it does not feel rewarding. But you will catch glimpses along the way of the rich blessings that come with following whatever plan Christ has for you. And at the end, you will be able to say, along with Paul, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. That is the life-changing work of the gospel. The last thing I want to look at this morning is this, the authority of the gospel. The authority of the gospel. Follow along as I read. Verse 21. <clears throat> and they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? 
I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. And he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. We're looking at the message of Jesus Christ. His message is the gospel. The gospel is from God, about God. And in verses 21 through 28, we see that Jesus' teaching, the gospel, was a message with authority. After Jesus calls the four fishermen to be his disciples, they enter Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was a small town on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. It was where Peter lived. And Capernaum becomes a sort of base of operations for Jesus. We'll see him return there again and again. So they go to Capernaum, and specifically, Jesus goes into the synagogue. Now, synagogues were where the Jews met for various community activities. Of course, they worshiped there, but they also, it was also a place of a meeting hall, it was a school, and it could even be a courtroom. Now, prior to the destruction of Solomon's temple, there were no synagogues. The synagogue was developed when the Jews were in exile in Babylon. It was a way for them to meet and continue their religious practices far from home. And even after the new temple was built, the practice of the local synagogue continued. Now, it was a normal practice for Jesus to do this. He would enter the synagogues in different towns on the Sabbath, which was the day of rest on Saturday, and he would teach. Paul takes up this same practice in the book of Acts, going to different synagogues and teaching. Now, it's interesting, any qualified man, any qualified Jew was free to enter the synagogue and just teach. That was the practice back then. So Jesus enters the synagogue of Capernaum and he delivers a message and it's a message of authority. The text reads in verse 22, and they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Now, Mark does not provide the content of Jesus' teaching, and that's pretty typical of Mark. There are some places throughout the book that he does include Jesus' teaching, but he focuses mainly on Jesus' activities, on his miracles or his interactions with his disciples and the Pharisees and his trek to Jerusalem. Here, Mark contrasts Jesus' teaching with that of the scribes. The scribes, sometimes called lawyers, were experts at interpreting and applying the law of Moses. I use that term expert loosely. The scribes can be, cha- can be traced back to the time of Ezra. They were responsible for teaching the people the scriptures. If you were an average Jew, it was unlikely that you had a copy of the law. It was very expensive for the working class person to have their own written copy of the law. So they went to the synagogues and they listened to the teachings of the scribes. Now originally... The scribes did a great job. In Ezra's day, they would teach God's law and they would expound it to the people, kind of like preaching today. But over the centuries, from Ezra to Jesus, it became more of a practice for scribes to teach the material of a previous scribe. They got further and further away from teaching God's word and they taught opinions on God's word. And that's likely what led them to following traditions that were out of sync with Scripture. So Jesus arrives on the scene, and he doesn't preach another scribe's work. He teaches the Word of God. And better than that, 
He is the word of God, John chapter one. So Jesus had insight into the scripture that no one has ever had. And we're told that the people were astonished by his teaching. And that word astonished is, is, is to be amazed. It's to be overwhelmed. Their minds were just blown by what Jesus was teaching them. Now just think for a minute. What would it have been like to sit and listen to Jesus? Jesus' message, the gospel, was one of authority because it came from the word and was taught by the word. While Jesus is teaching, here comes a demon-possessed man. Now the ESV says he had an unclean spirit. That word unclean referred to ceremonially or morally unclean things, things that the Jews weren't supposed to touch, things that, the, that they were not supposed to eat. But it's also a word that they use to refer to demons. And demon possession is going to, something we're going to see a lot of. In fact, we see a lot of it throughout the four Gospels. Jesus often comes into contact with people who were possessed. Now, that's interesting because you don't see demon possession in the Old Testament. And only twice do we encounter it in the book of Acts. And I'm not saying it didn't happen. I'm just saying we don't see it. It's not recorded. Why is that? By way of explanation, John MacArthur offers this. Demon possession, always present, usually hidden, was dramatically and uniquely exposed during the ministry of Jesus Christ. The rebellious angels were unable to remain concealed in his presence. We see that all through the Gospels. Demons can't remain hidden in his presence. They cry out and they make themselves known. Jesus is like a metal detector that finds coins in the ground. The demons can't help it in his presence. They're just compelled to reveal themselves. This demon cries out, what have you to do with us? That was a Hebrew idiom for leave us alone. That's what he's saying there. Jesus' presence strikes fear in demons because they know him. In fact, they served him at one time in eternity past before the rebellion. And that's why this demon says here, have you come to destroy us? He knew that Jesus had the authority to cast the demon into the lake of fire. In fact, that's the fate that awaits Satan and all the demons, Matthew 25, 41. Now the use of the plural, what have you to do with us, that most likely means the demon was asking on behalf of all fallen angels. What have you come to do with us, all demons everywhere? Then the demon says something interesting. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. That happens quite often when Jesus encounters demons. They cry out who he is. Why would they do that? Why would they openly admit who Jesus is? Well, again, remember, demons can't remain hidden in Jesus' presence. They can't help but make themselves known. And it's possible, perhaps, they can't help but reveal who Jesus is. That's one possibility. There's another possibility that several commentators offered, and it was that perhaps the demon was trying to use this title, the Holy One of God, as a way to gain control over Jesus. It was widely believed in the ancient world that if you knew the name of a spiritual being, you could gain power over that being. Now, I don't agree with that, but it was an idea that was popular during the time. So perhaps what the demon's trying to do here is to use Jesus' identity against him. Well, whatever the reason, the demon says this, and Jesus responds by saying, be silent. 
And that's a funny word because it's actually the word for muzzle, like muzzling an ox. Perhaps in our day we would use a term like put a sock in it. That's what Jesus is telling the demon. Then with a mere command, Jesus tells the demon to come out and it has to obey. It has to obey. It doesn't do so willingly. In fact, it throws the man into convulsions as a way of protest, but nonetheless, it has to obey. Now, why is this story written in Mark's gospel? It's written to show that Jesus, the divine servant, has authority. Warren Rearsby writes this, We expect a servant to be under authority and to take orders. But God's servant exercises authority and gives orders even to demons, and his orders are obeyed. The people in the text respond by recognizing Jesus' authority. Look at verse 27. And they were all amazed, so that they they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. The gospel has authority. Jesus came teaching a message, the gospel, and that message has great authority even over the spiritual world. This whole scene, like we talked about last week, is more evidence to who Jesus is. He is divine. He is God. And he has great authority. Now do we recognize the authority of Jesus' message. Are you continually astonished at who Jesus is? The gospel has great authority, and we've seen from our text that it can change lives, cast out demons, and amaze people. But you know, I wonder if at times the cares of this world, the day in, day out of life, dampens our ability to be astonished with who Jesus is and what he teaches. And every time I crack open God's word, I should be astonished as these people were. I want to be overwhelmed with the power of the gospel. I want the light of God's word to shine in, expose the darkness, and change me. I want to be reminded every day that I serve someone whose authority overrides and influences this world, but unfortunately, that's not true. Not every day. The cares and the concerns and my own feelings get in the way and I'm not astonished at God's word. But I challenge myself and I challenge you as well. Together, let's you and I, let's commit to being amazed at the authority of Jesus Christ. Jesus came with a message. That message is the gospel. The gospel calls us to respond. It changes lives, and it has great authority. In his little book, A Gospel Primer, Milton Vincent writes this, The Bible twice describes the gospel as the power of God, Romans 1.6, 1 Corinthians 1.18. Such a description indicates that the gospel is not only powerful, but that it is the ultimate entity in which God's power resides and does its greatest work. Just as Jesus called people to respond through repentance and belief 2,000 years ago, so he calls you to respond today. In a world where you and I are bombarded with all kinds of messages, let the true message, the message of the gospel, do its great work in you. How? 
by constantly preaching this message to yourself. Repent of whatever sin, repent of whatever lies, repent of whatever you see in your life that is not in allegiance to God and believe. Believe in Jesus, hand it to Jesus, receive the truth of what he says. Proclaim to yourself who you are in Christ, submit to his authority, and watch life change take place inside you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that the gospel is your message. And it's not just any message. It's a message from you about you. Thank you that you have the power to change our lives. This gospel message is a message of change. Help us, Lord to learn, to repent, and to believe every single day. Show us from what we need to repent and help us place our faith in you. Help us get that message deep down in our hearts. Purge away the sin, the idols, the lies that blind us and hold us captive and and grant us true freedom in you. We praise you, Lord, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to move into a time of communion now. And I want you to take this time to just examine your hearts before God. It's a time of reflection between you and the Lord. The elements are here. We'll come up row by row and collect the elements as we've been doing. And I ask that after you collect the elements, you hold on to them, take them back and sit down, and then we will all take of them together. I want to say that it is a delight to have children in our midst. It really is. And parents, we trust you to determine the readiness of your children for communion. I want to add one more thing. Communion is meant for believers. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, even if you're not a member here at Harvest, we invite you to partake of communion with us. However, if you're not a believer, if you've been hearing some things this morning about this Jesus and you've never accepted him as your savior, I'm just going to ask that you remain in your seat and you ponder what you've heard. And you allow the Holy Spirit to reveal to you the truth. Jesus is who he said he is. And he's come to offer you repentance, forgiveness. With that, let's go to communion.